0: I'm Leah Fleming and you are listening to Georgia in Play from GPB News. Nice to have you along today. So if you could have a word or a phrase named after you, what would it be? While you think about that, let me tell you about a former governor of Massachusetts. His name was Elbridge Gerry. In 1811, while he was in office, he got mad over the Federalist Party's opposition to then-president James Madison's foreign policy. So In response, he approved a controversial redistricting plan designed to give his Republican Party an advantage in elections. The Federalist Press clapped back with a cartoon figure of an election district that was shaped like a medieval salamander. And from there, the term gerrymander or gerrymander was born. My curiosity led me to the National Archives to read about Eldridge Gary and how the word gerrymandering came to be. Since you're listening, you're probably a public radio nerd, too. Anyway, let's talk more now about what's happening here in Georgia. Next month, state legislators will get to work on drawing some new voting maps. They have to be done with that by December 8th because a federal judge says so. After the last U.S. Census, legislators redrew the maps in their favor, but then some civil liberty groups sued the state. They said the maps violate the Federal Voting Rights Act by diluting the voter power of African-Americans. Governor Kemp is appealing that ruling. Ken Lawler, you are co-chair of Fair Districts Georgia, which is a nonpartisan group that advocates for fair redistricting. So could this ultimately go to the Supreme Court?
1: It's hard to speculate as to the the legal um, maneuvering that might occur following this judge's decision. There's a case that happened in Alabama which kind of preceded the Georgia case by a few months. And in the Alabama case, uh, they they ordered a new map for their congressional districts. The state legislature there did not want to comply with the court's order, so they drew maps that did not comply. The Supreme Court basically shut that path down So on, on the appeal. it had gone to the Supreme Court first for the landmark decision that came down in June that authorized it. Um, and so the Supreme Court has shut that pathway down. There may be some basis on which Georgia would like to appeal this. Okay. Um, I can't speculate as to what that would be. It's possible they could come up with some argument that's novel and that the judges need to consider and therefore it could get to the Supreme Court. Um, I think that federal courts have kind of narrowed the pathway though, based on the Alabama precedent. And that Alabama precedent is the one on the legal principles and that precedent are the ones on which the Georgia cases rely. So the law is now clear, right? The law is now clear. So. I can't speculate as to how George is going to proceed in terms of any legal maneuvering, but I think the path is pretty narrow at this point.
0: Mm. And in Alabama, they just did this. The legislature ignored a judge's ruling, so the courts ended up drawing new maps.
1: Yeah, they appoint a special master at that point. The judge gave them two chances, didn't work, and they said, fine, we'll appoint a special master. The court has now drawn the map Mm -hmm. for Alabama's congressional district senate now complies with the order. So the judge in this order was pretty clear that he's giving the legislature the chance to do it, which is the right process. But he appears that he's not going to tolerate a long delay of any kind. He's got a deadline in the order. So we're looking forward to seeing new maps by December 8th. That would be the best outcome. Mm-hmm.
0: So you have actually looked at a potential maps that have been proposed by legislators in the past. And when you look at maps, what are you looking for?
1: So we look for three things uh, in terms of what makes a fair map. First of all, we want the map to properly represent minorities. So that complies with the Voting Rights Act. So we look for how many black majority or minority majority districts are there across the state in each of the maps. And here we're talking again about state Senate, state House and Congress are so the maps we focus on. Um, we're looking for a proper minority representation that complies with the law. We look for the right partisan balance, meaning are the maps fair to both political parties? Um, and also, is there competition in the maps? Are there enough districts that are competitive to where voters have a meaningful say? Mm-hmm. So those are, the, those are the main criteria we look at. I will say that Georgia has typically failed the test on partisan fairness. Partisan gerrymandering is unfortunately legal in the state. It's also wrong. <laughs> we are trying to fix that. Um, and And there's very little competition in the maps. Uh, as well, and that's you know the, the maps in 2021 were engineered to provide safe seats for both parties. We don't don't think that serves the voters' best interest. Within competition is a good thing. Uh, it makes you know, it 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 lets gives voters a chance. The maps should respond to change in voting patterns, but they don't when they're non-competitive.
0: I think it's tough to be competitive when you're looking at whatever party is in power and they design uh, the maps. In a few places, though, like California is one, there's an independent commission that redraws the maps after uh, the US Census. What is the the likelihood, do you think, that that could ever be the case in Georgia, something like that?
1: Well, it's the gold standard that we would like to implement, and mm-hmm. we have advocated for that. And that proposal has been introduced in the state legislature, interestingly enough, by both parties uh, at, at various times since about 2005. Mm-hmm. But it never goes anywhere. The problem with the independent commission model in Georgia is that it requires an amendment to the Georgia Constitution, very high bar to get it through the legislature. We're convinced that if it got through the legislature, citizens would vote for it. We've polled on this question, and citizens would like to see the law change. Citizens would love to see more competitive maps. We know this from a poll that we fielded about a year ago, right? So we know that citizens would favor this. And in every state where it's been put to a ballot, it always passes. But you got to get through the legislature here. And because it's a constitutional amendment, that's two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate before it goes in the ballot. So it's a long shot. Um, right now, the mood is not there to change the process. As you said, um, politicians do not want to give up the power to determine their own destiny to draw their own maps. It's a conflict of interest, in our view. But that's the way the system is designed here, and has been since the Constitution of Georgia was written.
0: Mm, you say a conflict of interest. What do you mean?
1: Well, uh, a, a politician drawing a map that can favor their own election right. is the issue, right? You draw a map that says. I drew this map and the maps typically get drafted. And then there's a lot of little edits. If you look at the way the process unfolded in 2021, there were draft maps that were produced a couple of days before the hearings. Then there were a bunch of edits made to those maps, little here district by district. And you look at the edits and you can see that that district was being made safer for the incumbent. So mm-hmm. take out this little Republican area if I'm a Democrat or take out this little Democrat area from my district if I'm a Republican. We see that happen. Think of a salesman designing their own territory and saying, see, I did a good job. (laughs) That's what it is. It's a conflict of interest. So, again, it's legal but wrong.
0: So Georgia is now required to draw new maps. They'll have to include several new seats in majority black districts around Atlanta and one in Macon Bibb. Was there anything that stood out to you when you looked at what needed to be changed?
1: I think the judge got it right in mm-hmm. terms of the target areas. Uh, the, the, the trial was a very extensive review of expert testimony. There were a couple sets of illustrative maps that were used by the experts to demonstrate the violation of the Voting Rights Act. And by virtue of that demonstration, um, by using those illustrative maps, you can kind of pinpoint what can be fixed. Uh, the legislature, of course, is going has to draw the maps themselves. They won't necessarily adopt the illustrative maps. They probably won't. But the judge has directed them to look at particular areas in the state. So we think he got it right. The one area in the particular where the illustrative maps were looking for an additional Black majority Senate district around the uh, Augusta Richmond area, the judge shut that down. He said, You know, you haven't demonstrated that there is a compact district that you could draw uh, around that area. So the judge, I think, was pretty fair in terms of saying we're not going to give the plaintiffs everything they asked for, but You know, where where the plaintiffs demonstrated all the criteria and there's extensive criteria that have to be met uh, based on Supreme Court precedent and prior Senate testimony in the U.S. Senate. Very complicated analysis. I would say I think the court got it right here in that in that, um, you know, requiring these new districts is the right thing to do.
0: Mm -hmm. So your group has said that Georgia is now a swing state and our district should reflect that reality. How did you come to that conclusion?
1: Yeah, so we've looked at the elections all the way back to the year 2000. And we've looked at a couple of things. We've looked at every state legislative election, every congressional election. And then we also look at the major statewide races, Congress, excuse me, Senate, governor, right, president. The pattern that we see is that, you know, from the early 2000s, we were a very, very Republican-oriented state. When you look at the statewide elections, the governor and president and so on, a very Republican-oriented state. In 2018, then, we had that very close governor's race between uh, Mrs. Abrams and uh, Kemp, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Republican won by a very narrow margin. Then in 2020, we had a presidential election that was razor close, right? Uh, We had the Senate runoffs, which turned out to be very close as well. And then in 2022, the two top races were split, right? Uh, uh, Mr. Warnock won the Senate race. Mr. Kemp won the the, uh, governor's race. So we say at a statewide level it's a it's kind of a split thing right we you either either party could win an election at the statewide level mm-hmm. now, when you get down to Congress and the state house and the state Senate, then the level of swing is determined by how the maps are drawn right and in a state like Georgia, where you have um Democrats clustered in cities, Republicans tend to be much more spread out into the rural areas of the or outlying areas of the state um you're not going to have a map that's 50-50. It, it can't be drawn that way because of the clustering issue, right? But the map should be closer to balance than they are. And that's what we advocated when the maps were redrawn after the census in 2021 by saying these maps should be closer. They're still going to have a bit of a Republican lean. And that's fair. That fairly represents Georgia. But the maps still tilt the, the three maps are still tilted towards Republicans, Um Uh, enough that it, it doesn't really represent the political preferences of Georgia voters.
0: Ken Lawler, you are doing some important work through Fair Districts Georgia and thank you so much for telling us about it. We appreciate it.
1: Oh, You're very welcome. Glad to be here.
0: You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming, Secretary of Treasury. Janet Yellen has said that the U.S. economy has failed to live up to the promise of equal opportunity for all. She says that racial equity is at the forefront of the Treasury's agenda. So she's invited several high-ranking government officials and leaders from all over the country to her place, the U.S. Department of the Treasury, in Washington, D.C., to talk about it. The event is called the Freedmen's Bank Forum. Now, the Freedmen's Bank, that was created by President Lincoln to provide economic opportunity for newly emancipated African-Americans. Of course, Georgia is in the House. Savannah Mayor Van Johnson was invited to speak at the event. He is here with me now. Hi, Mayor Van Johnson.
2: Hello, how are you?
0: Hi, it's great to have you here. So I wanted to ask you about this. In Savannah, there is this racial equity and leadership task force established under, under your administration that has been examining uh, racial inequities that exist in Savannah. A couple of years ago, the task force uh, released a report that said, despite Savannah's human, natural, and creative resources, at least 22% of residents live in income poverty, especially African-Americans and single head of households. And I'm wondering uh, what the progress has been like uh, since that report and, and what's been happening in Savannah with that.
2: Well, first of all, again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, The Racial Equity and Leadership uh, Task Force was really my attempt for Savannah to have finally a grown-up conversation about issues of race and class uh, in Savannah. Um, Heretofore, we're always kind of back and forth by perceptions or beliefs well i've learned that when you are in engaging in a scientific process you have to first identify the problem and so you know the question is you know what is the disparity and then how do you measure that disparity and so we identify five different areas and and for savannah to become all that it can be we have to bring everyone along we have to give everyone equal opportunity to be a part of it and and so um you know this Falls right in line with with, what Treasury Secretary Yellen is doing. She visited Savannah a couple of weeks ago. Um, And so I'm just glad to be be a part of it um, as we kind of supercharge our efforts locally uh, by engaging with our federal partners.
0: The Georgia Ports Authority recently announced it's donating $6 million to the Savannah Affordable Housing Fund in the coming years to, uh, they say, approve affordable housing options in Savannah. Your reaction to that and how does that help?
2: We negotiated that, Um, so very proud um, that the city manager and myself um, went to the ports and said, hey, you know, housing is a challenge here, housing is, um, certainly a challenge for people who live in what's called port side communities, uh, historically black communities that are disproportionately affected by all of the activities of the port. We know that our port is on fire. We know that it's, um, the second busiest in the, on the West Coast is maybe the third busiest in the nation. Um, they are moving, grooving, they're innovating. Um, but we have to make sure that the people who work at the port have a place to live. Um, you know, it doesn't help us for people to have to drive one in two hours to be able to get to work. Uh, and so in building a relationship with the Georgia Ports Authority uh, and really talking about that our priorities should be their priorities, um, we were able to reach this historic opportunity um, that makes sure that the historically black communities um, have $6 million over the next eight years, I think it's like $750,000 a year, um, to be able to do two things. One, fix up their homes, um, because sometimes that's a reason for displacement. And then secondly, for first-time home ownership uh, in those West Side historic communities. Um, again, we're all in this together, and housing should be an economic uh, opportunity as well, because you need people to do the work. As you know, um, the Hyundai plan is coming um, right outside of our our Western door, so to speak, um, and it's coming, it's building fast, and we don't have the housing in the region the transportation in the region, um, the uh, workforce building in that region to really be able to support that. And so if we don't do a much better job and do it quicker, um, people will be displaced. Mm
0: -hmm. So President Biden and the Biden administration, they have uh, touted their successes with the economy, especially with the American Rescue Plan uh, the the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act. But unfortunately, still too many people say they, they don't really feel it yet. Uh, so what do you think it's going to take to make those gains really feel real for people in urban centers like Savannah, which is, you know, over 50 percent black?
2: Well, I think we are blessed to have uh, a president who not only cares, but has put uh, his policy where his mouth is. Um, He believes in investing um, directly into workers and communities, and Savannah has been a beneficiary of that. Um, We know that the economy is strange and the president doesn't control the economy no more than the mayor controls the economy. There are just some weird things happening in the economy. Um, You know, in spite of record high interest rates, we have record low uh, unemployment. And so President Biden's uh, investing in America agenda has really catalyzed Um, the most equitable recovery in history. And it continues to make substantial steps uh, to address capital and and customer uh, gaps. I mean, we we can talk about the historic um, legislation. I mean, you talk about the American Rescue Plan, which helped a lot of people, the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, the CHIPS and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, You know, this has all led to the strongest job recoveries Uh, in history. In Savannah, we have more jobs than we have people. And we're looking for people to work. And yet in this, we're rebuilding our nation's infrastructure, and we're bringing manufacturing back uh, to the United States. And we see that uh, in the port of Savannah.
0: All right, Van Johnson, you are the mayor of the very beautiful city of Savannah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Can you believe it? The year is going so fast. Well, as you start to make plans to gather with family and friends, you may be having some anxiety about that, or maybe it's something else. Whatever you may be going through, stay tuned because Shankar Vedantham has some ways that you can feel better. That's ahead on George in Play. you are listening to Georgia in Play. So many of us are struggling with something right now. You you probably are too. What's happening in Israel and Gaza, the hate, the gun violence around our country, the trauma and sadness of losing a loved one, the bills stacking up, and now it's time to get ready for the holidays. We'll take a moment to exhale because help is on the way. Shankar Vedantam is host of the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show, which we air on GPB. Shankar, you say that you can change your life by paying attention to the stories that you tell yourself about your life. I find this very interesting. What do you mean by that?
3: That's right. First of all, thank you so much for having me on, Leah. It's such a pleasure to be uh, back on uh, on the station again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we think about our lives, uh, Leah, many of us think of our lives as if we were sitting in a theater and we are the audience watching the action unfold on stage. So in other words, we experience our lives, we witness our lives, and we think that things happen to us and we observe them. Now that is true, Uh, we are experiencing and witnessing our lives, but it's also the case that we are the author of our lives in a very important fashion. Um, When we tell the story of what's happened to us, um, psychological research suggests that the way we tell those stories ends up being profoundly important in our mental health and well-being. So, for example, if you tell stories of your life where each chapter starts on a high note, You know, two people meet and they fall in love and they get married and they're very happy, but the chapter ends on a down note. You know, the couple breaks up, they get divorced, uh, one person dies. It has a sad, sad ending to it. Psychologists call this a contamination sequence where you're starting on a high note and ending on a low note. But because all of our lives have both ups and downs, you can also choose to break the chapter slightly differently where you're starting on a low note and you're ending on a high note. And the research finds that when you tell these kinds of what are called redemptive sequences, as opposed to contamination sequences, when you narrate your life and say, this is the story of my life, it's a series of redemption sequences, it turns out our mental health and well-being are much, much better. <clears throat> and that's the idea behind this episode, which is called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Mm.
0: You have this special series on um, on this this month of November on Hidden Brain, Why did you decide to do this series in November?
3: You know, Leah, when you look at the world, it really feels like there is a lot of hurt in the Mm -hmm. world. Uh, As you said in your introduction to this segment, it just feels like everywhere you look, there are a lot of people hurting. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And it's also the case that I think this time of year reminds people of things in their life that they once had that they no longer have. And even though the holidays are a wonderful time and a sweet time and a time for celebration, they can also be bittersweet. And for some people, they can be downright painful. And so we thought that we would actually assemble together a whole bunch of ideas from different strands of psychological research and put them together in a package in a way that can help people think about their traumas, their setbacks, their griefs with with a more positive orientation in a way that can actually help them uh, improve their lives, not necessarily to come out the other side better, but in some ways to cope, to deal with setbacks in a more healthy fashion.
0: Uh, You know, one of the episodes that you are going to have on deals with Crafting a better apo- uh, apology, and why is it so hard to apologize? What can you share yeah. about that? Because it is, it is hard.
3: <laughs> yeah, and this is actually a really interesting thing, which is that when you think about, um, you know, when when someone when, when someone does something wrong to you, and 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 they come up to you afterwards and say, "Look, I, I recognize that I did something wrong. I recognize that it's really hurt you. Uh, I did not mean to do that. I apologize for the hurt that I caused." it doesn't make the pain go away, but it does significantly, I think, limit how bad we feel. So in other words, apologies have incredible power to transform relationships, and not just at the individual level. If you think at the group level, when people sort of acknowledge the hurt and suffering that one group has done to the other, it has a transformative effect on group relations, because in some ways, until you do that, the hurt is essentially hanging over the relationship. And so this episode really looks at the psychology of of uh, of, uh, of apologies, how we can make apologies uh, better, how, how, how we can craft apologies better, but also, why it's so difficult to craft an apology and why it's so difficult to express uh, an apology. Uh, And we're going to try and look at apologies at at various scales, from the individual apology of one person apologizing to another person for an interpersonal harm, to collective apologies, to the idea that sometimes you might need to have entire groups or entire nations uh, craft apologies to other groups or other nations for the harms that they have done.
0: So what's one strategy you can give away to tell us about how to apologize? Well
3: one interesting idea is that sometimes if someone says you know I see all this research on apologies and let me let me try and take that into account one way you often see sometimes politicians do this is that they will apologize too quickly, mm. they will basically sort of say, I, "I want to sort of really put this in the rearview mirror. I want to try and get this behind us as quickly as possible. Let me try and do some crisis management and PR management and apologize quickly, and hopefully we can sweep this under the rug." In many ways, I think we are very vigilant to apologies that seem insincere, you know. And one of the ways, in some ways, you can communicate your sincerity is actually to take the time, not just to apologize, but to actually process what has happened to the other person, to process that pain and hurt. Part of what we're actually looking for when someone apologizes to us is not just to hear the words, I'm sorry, but to hear the acknowledgement that they feel what we have felt, Mm -hmm. that they have experienced to some extent what we have experienced, that they understand not just from a PR point of view and not just from an image management point of view, but that they actually understand the harm that they have caused. When people do this for us, it can have a transformative effect on our willingness to forgive and to continue uh, to build on the relationship.
0: You know, I want to uh, make sure that we give a listener one way to cope with tragedy, uh, going through uh, this season that we're getting ready to go through with the holidays. What's what's one tip you have for for dealing with that? So many of us are dealing with um, personal loss, and yeah. what's what can you tell us?
3: You know, one of the episodes in this Healing 2.0 series, Leah, is called Life After Loss, and it follows the the work and the life of a researcher named Lucy Hone, who suffered an unimaginable loss. She lost her own uh, daughter in a traffic crash and had to cope with that loss afterwards. And one of the things that Lucy uh, Hone discovered is an idea that I think has very ancient echoes in many spiritual traditions, which is that bad things are gonna happen to us, Uh, setbacks and tragedies are going to affect us. That is more or less inevitable in all our lives. But how we respond to those, how we cope with those, how what our thought process is when these things happen to us, plays a profoundly important role in our well-being. I was reading a book the other day uh, that looked at uh, Buddhist ideas, and there's an idea that the Buddha is supposed to have taught, you know, several centuries ago, and it's called the two arrows. And the idea is that you know, as we go through life, we're often going to be struck by arrows, and when the arrow strikes us, it's going to cause us pain. One thing you can avoid doing is don't add a second arrow to the same point of injury. Why did I take that trip that day? Because it led to that bad thing happening. And in some ways, the second arrow can be even more painful than the first because the second arrow is self-inflicted.
0: Shankar Vedantam, you are the host of the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show, uh, which we broadcast and bring to people on uh, gpb Thank you so much for sharing this special series with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Leah.
0: You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Have you looked at the cost of your medical care lately? You know, once you get that bill in the mail or in your email, you take a look at what it all really costs before insurance kicks in. Well, even after insurance, the cost is crazy. Well, now imagine that you don't have insurance. Maybe you don't even need to imagine it because you are living it. It is not a game at all. Reverend Dr. Ted Gashorn, you are a senior pastor at the Mulberry Street United Methodist Church in Macon, and it's very nice to talk to you about this issue.
4: Good to talk with you as well.
0: All right. So your church is one of a few across Georgia that has taken this issue on. Why did you start this campaign to clear more than a million dollars in medical debt for people in middle and south Georgia?
4: So this is a church that um, has been through some tough times in the last several years. And one of the things that we believe God does is uh, bless us in the places where we have experienced brokenness. And so as we have been experiencing healing as a congregation, uh, we felt a call to offer that healing to others. And one of the ways that we fought to do that, a church member, you know, sent me an article, a news article uh, of churches in North Carolina who had done this. And um, I felt like that was something that really fit this moment where we're working toward fostering healing for those broken places in our community and and as far as we can reach. So uh, this seemed like a natural fit and we reached out to our partner that we worked with and uh, one thing led to another and uh, we used this to launch our stewardship campaign this year.
0: Mm. So what is your plan? How does it work?
4: Uh, It's still kind of astounding to me. So uh we worked with r.i.p medical debt and uh they are um i think what you would call a debt collector uh, you know just like you know any other debt collector um except that they just they choose to operate differently so debt that is more medical debt that's more than 24 months in arrears can be sold on a marketplace and it's often sold for pennies on the dollar and these you know providers just are basically writing the debt off of their books the debt collectors will pick that up, and then they will go after the patient to collect. And what you know, the patient may see is they owe, say, $50,000. They settle with the debt collector for $20,000. They think they've gotten a great deal, not realizing the debt collector may have only paid $500 or $1,000 for that debt, and they've made a significant profit. So RIP medical debt goes and purchases that debt the same way that another debt collector would, but then we raise the money... And then we pay them what they paid for the medical debt. So we paid, say, $500 for that $50,000 of medical debt. Um, Because with HIPAA, uh, we don't know whose debt we paid off, but we just get a report by county that tells us how much debt in each county in Georgia was paid off. Um, And so they took that money, they paid off those individuals' debt, they get a letter that says that Mulberry Street United Methodist Church paid off their debt, um, and they're just released from it.
0: You know, the Kaiser uh, Family Foundation reports that about 41% of U.S. adults have debt from medical or dental bills. You know, this is an issue, uh, particularly with with lower income people, but even middle class uh, people have Mm -hmm. experienced this. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for insurance because when I really do look at the cost of what it is, you know, what the debt, you know, what the cost is, the medical care, and then I look at what insurance is taken care of. You know, I, I know I'm grateful. What have you heard from, from the people in your church? What what stories have you heard about this?
4: I'll say first, we heard um, a lot of stories of heartbreak, um, people calling the church asking if we could pay off their specific debt load. And of course, that's not how this works, unfortunately, and we weren't able to do that. But just to hear those stories and the way that folks of you know various income uh, and means uh, struggle in this way. Um, but for the you know members of the church, uh, we have just felt really heartwarm to be able to make a difference, um, to think that the fifteen thousand dollars we raised could pay off over $1.1 million of medical debt. That, you know, doing something that for us, you know, uh, and the community partners who helped us, um, you know, honestly, uh we we raised that money in about 10 days. And so, you know, it was an it was an encouraging and an enthusiastic response. Um, and just to think that it could have that kind of Exponential impact was really, really big.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was going to ask you who is eligible for uh, these funds, but as you were saying, you know, people can't just reach out to your church in order to get that kind of help. But there are people that are listening to this that are going to want that, that kind of help. What do you advise?
4: I think two things. I think one is to be educated on how this works. If the debt's been sold to um, on the marketplace to a debt collector, then there are probably a lot more options than it would appear. Mm -hmm. The second, I think the best place is the second point I'd make the best place to find out what those options are is through a nonprofit debt counseling service. Uh, I know you're in Atlanta. There are lots of those in Atlanta. There's a couple of those here in Macon. Um, I imagine there are others in other locations across the state. So I would encourage folks to reach out before they you know, try to negotiate or work with this debt collector to uh, or even if they haven't had their debt sold yet to go to one of these nonprofit, I emphasize that word, nonprofit debt counseling services um, for uh, advice uh, and help.
0: Okay. All right. Reverend Ted Goshorn, you are a senior pastor at the Mulberry Street United Methodist Church in Macon. Thank you so much for talking with us about this. Well, thank you for
4: the opportunity.
0: So are you going out to eat this weekend? Do you just go to the usual spot or are you looking for a star? Coming up, you will hear about some restaurants with a new distinction in Atlanta. That's ahead on Georgia in Play. You are listening to Georgia in Play. If you love to eat out and try new places to eat, you have no shortage of places to go for reviews of the most talked about restaurants. The Michelin Guide is the gold standard. It's what most restaurateurs dream of. This is a 123-year-old French dining guide. It's best known for its anonymous inspectors, and it's hard to get ratings of one, two, or three stars, ratings that can make or break culinary landmarks. Atlanta has now joined only a handful of regions in the country where restaurants can earn the Michelin Guide's attention. GPB's Orlando Montoya has covered this. He was at a ceremony last month where Atlanta's first Michelin stars were handed out. What is it Orlando about this guide that gets people talking so much?
5: I think it's a couple of things. First of all, it's big business. Uh, Restaurants are a $30 billion a year business in Georgia. Think about how much money you spend when you go out to eat. Multiply that by orders of magnitude when you're talking about foodies, food tourists, business visitors who come here. They're coming here with a corporate account and they want to impress, so they spend lots of money. The Michelin Guide is not the only review site out there. I mean, there's mm-hmm. others. There's the James Beard Awards, various influential TikTokers. But I think the Michelin Guide has some cachet, not just because of its history, but because of this inspectors, uh, these inspectors. So they're anonymous. They work in a team. So it's not just like one guy going on one day and eating, you know, in his car. You know, it's <laughs> it's right. it, they they have a method to it. And also just how few restaurants get Michelin stars and how few places and cities there are. Mm-hmm.
0: So tell me about the, the ceremony itself. You attended the ceremony, set the scene. What was it like? Who was there? And most importantly, what did you eat? <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, they did have little samples of appetizers and desserts. I focused mainly on the desserts, a couple of cheesecake bites. Good man. Good but man. I, I think it had sort of like the feel of an Oscars or an Emmys. Not that I've ever been to those <laughs> places, but you can imagine, I, I don't recall if there was a red carpet, but it sort of had the red carpet atmosphere, people mm-hmm. taking selfies, wine glasses clinking, a sort of a who's who of Atlanta's business and culinary scene in there. And that was a friendly vibe that extended to the ceremony when the chefs were called up to the stage to get their awards. They donned these white jackets and they held mm-hmm. up their award and everybody were shouts of support and clapping. So it was a, it was a big event.
0: So you mentioned that the Michelin Guide, it focuses on fine dining and high-end experiences. But are there more moderately priced restaurants?
5: Yes, they have a category for that. It's called Bib Gourmand. (laughs) And there were 10 Atlanta restaurants with that distinction uh, recognized at the awards ceremony. This is what they describe as restaurants with a simpler style and, quote, the best value for money. And I also lift up 30 restaurants that received a recommended designation, so not quite a star, but recommended, many of which are more affordable. Those include Twisted Soul, which describes itself as a, quote, modern global soul food restaurant. Here's what Twisted Soul chef Robert Butts had to say when I spoke to him after the ceremony.
2: It feels great because it's Atlanta. It's the first time them being here, and be able to show out and
5: like know that the Michelin's recognizing our city and loving the food. That's all we can care for. When you when you got the call, the letter, or the email, did you did it surprise you? Yes, because <laughs> a lot of times you know a lot of stuff in the South is not respected as much. His restaurant menu has items like oxtails, ribs, fried green tomatoes, and peach cobbler. Welcome to the South, Michelin guy. <laughs> Welcome to the South.
0: Oh, goodness. So there were 45 restaurants altogether. Only five, though, received a coveted star, and no restaurants received two or three stars. Did that surprise you? It
5: might have surprised me, but then again, I'm not a restaurant critic. Mm -hmm. I don't make a habit of spending $100 a night on on meals. (laughs) But I will say that the post-ceremony opinions were largely favorable at the awards. Maybe some people thought some should have gotten higher. Uh, But their numbers who received them, overall favorable. And uh, it's very difficult to receive, you know, a star, um, let alone two stars or three. In the entire country, Leah, there's only 33 restaurants that have received two stars and 12 restaurants that received three stars. Oh, wow. And every award at the ceremony was celebrated like it was the highest award. (laughs) Uh, Here's Freddie Money, for example. Freddie Money is the chef at Atlas. And he earned one Michelin star for his restaurant.
2: Very humbling, awesome experience and uh, shows the dedication and hard work of our whole team. Uh, It's the the gold stamp of approval and uh, a sign that all our hard work paid off.
5: Atlas is located in Atlanta's swanky St. Regis Hotel. And Michelin described the restaurant with words like a grand celebration and impossibly elegant.
0: Mm, I'm there. So these restaurants, they stand to gain a lot of money from the attention that they receive uh, from Michelin. But some people might be surprised to learn that the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau actually paid for the Michelin Guide to be brought to Atlanta. How does all of that work?
5: Well, it's a three-year agreement, from what I understand, for a million dollars over three years. And they're paying for attention. They're paying for the guide to be here and pump out these Uh, glowing words and glossy photos that will grow business. And other people will read these words and then go review them themselves, and there'll be more words and more photos. But tourism officials don't get to say what restaurants, how many stars, etc. The editorial control is with Michelin, Uh, apart from what's been reported that the restaurant inspectors will review only Atlanta-area restaurants. So where that boundary is hasn't been uh, quite delineated, but based on the awards given, it appears to be the Atlanta Perimeter Highway. So outside 285, too bad. Savannah, too bad. Uh, (laughs) Lots of great restaurants in Georgia outside of Atlanta, too bad. Maybe that will change, but here's Andrew Wilson of the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau talking about their investment in
4: Michelin. We believe we've already received more than our money's worth from the first year, just with the amount of media attention it's generated.
5: And keep in mind that attention is going to keep going because this is an annual thing. So next year we'll be talking about, will they keep the star? Who's moving up? Who's moving down? People just love talking about places to eat.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, we are certainly talking about it. And we'll continue to keep up with the culinary scene in Georgia as it continues to be in play. Thank you so much, Orlando, for sharing this experience with us.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Your local bookstore is about more than just selling books. There are so many small shops that offer big opportunities to make new friends and enjoy some new culture. You will have a new place to visit after you hear this on Georgia and Play. Stay tuned. All right. I am talking right now with Rochelle Wilson Mosley. Hi, Rochelle. Hi. Hi, Leah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. So, you know, I love this conversation already because we're talking about one of your favorite things and one of mine, books. We are talking about books this month, and it is National Book Month. So you have listed out 10 magical Georgia bookshops, and uh, you have an inspiration for this. Tell us about the inspiration behind developing this list.
6: Sure. I'd love to. So my husband and I got married uh, almost two years ago in January, and we took a small local honeymoon to Athens, Georgia. Neither of us had been before. And so while we were there, we, we explored Athens a lot and took some day trips. And so one of those day trips was to Monroe, Georgia, and we visited the story shop, which just really reignited that childhood love I spoke of earlier. They had, it's a, it's a, bookstore geared towards children's books and children and they had hobbit holes you could climb in they had reading nooks with the wild things they had um, a mad hatter tea room where you could host a baby shower or something like that and then as we were checking out they said oh why don't you peep in the wardrobe We opened the wardrobe and pushed aside fur coats and just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, climbed into a reading room. It was so special. (laughs) That is so cool. exciting. Yeah, very cool. And at that moment, I was like, wow, this is so magical. But also, um, when we were in Athens, we visited Avid Bookshop as well, which is just so whimsical. They have a ton of book-centered events with local authors and signings, and they also do book recommendations they'll mail to you. so just very um, magical there as well. And so those two bookshops really began the stirring of, okay, there's some really special places in Georgia that are just so exciting to me and worth sharing.
0: Ah, so yes, you have traveled around the state. We would love to hear your top 10 list of bookshops.
6: Yeah. And I'd like to do a little caveat. This is by no means exhaustive. There are so many wonderful bookstores in Georgia, and I'm hoping to do a, a list, a second list, a part two follow-up to include some of the others that I didn't, hadn't visited at the time I wrote this, but okay. I still love but my 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 10 magical bookshops I'm going to share obviously the story shop in Monroe Georgia avid bookshop in Athens I spoke of those two there's another one I love called the bookshelf and that's in Thomasville Georgia really far south and they have a really inviting window display so every every time I visit it's totally different and really centered on what's happening in their downtown i also included e shaver bookseller that's in Savannah. Um, if you haven't been, the cats in the window are just calling to you to come in. In Augusta, Georgia, I love the Book Tavern. I was actually there last week. The Book Tavern has floor-to-ceiling shelves of books, including ladders to help you like navigate. I don't know if we're allowed to use the ladders, but they they give that, that look of reminding me of the library in The Beauty and the Beast, which, mm. of course, childhood dream. Um, the Read Shop in Atlanta, is a little different from the other ones on my list. This one is also a coffee shop and they brew my favorite coffee, Stumptown Coffee. And also they highlight uh, cookbooks mostly. So then we also have Judy Bugs books in Columbus. My brother used to live in Columbus so I would often go visit family there and i tried to always go out of my way to stop in duty bugs i feel like that's one of my criteria on this list if i would go out of my way to visit it i'm putting it on the list (laughs) another one i included is the book lady books in savannah and i like to say that like to be a, a magical bookstore you don't have to have brick walls creaky wooden floors and love sofas, but book lady books brings that to the table. And I just love it. Another book uh, bookstore on here is got walls books. They actually have several locations in central Georgia. So each of those locations have something a little special. Um, And lastly, I included acapella bookstore in Atlanta. Um, acapella is fun because you walk in they've got all the new books in the front but for those of us who like the old stuff you can kind of crawl in the back corner and there's a whole other room ah.
0: so to hear you talk about all of these bookstores, these book shops I, you know, it, it's got me thinking, you know, we've heard about so many shops closing You know, especially in light of the downturn in the economy or or the demand for people actually going out and so I find this very exciting and encouraging. It's not just about, okay, I want to get that latest book, but it's also, it, it sounds like it's an experience.
6: Definitely. I think that brick and mortar experience is something that's so special and something that really does, I say, magical Georgia bookstores because I feel there's just a magic, not only in an individual book, but in being in a place that you can look around and you're surrounded by this, this wellspring of creativity and wisdom from people that may have lived hundreds of years ago, but whose works live on today. And I think being in that sort of place and that promise of of adventure, that promise of an experience that's just waiting for you to pick it out and take it home, um, really just brings a lot of joy. And so I'm really grateful to see that these local bookshops are
0: continuing to thrive. Uh, all right, Rochelle Wilson Mosley, you are of Southern Siren. That is uh, the the blog.
6: Yeah. So the southern siren.com is where I write and muse about um, books and other things. I also like to highlight local women in the South who are making a big difference. Um, So yeah.
1: Okay.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. We appreciate you.
6: Leah, thank you for having me.
0: Bookstores are not the only place to find some good classic material to be inspired by. So are book festivals, and there are a lot of these that happen across Georgia. It's Jewish Book Month. It's a time to celebrate Jewish literature and writers. It usually happens about 30 days leading up to Hanukkah. Around 1926, a Jewish immigrant named Fanny Goldstein was working at the Boston Public Library. She loved culture, and she also started this club for girls to learn about one another's backgrounds. She made up displays at the library. She created Negro History Week, that's what it was called back then, Catholic Book Week, and Jewish Book Week at the library. As a librarian, she compiled a list of several hundred books on these topics. And from there, that is how we got to Jewish Book Month. In Atlanta, at the Marcus Jewish Community Center, the book festival is going on this month. And there are a lot of new books for you to curl up with this weekend if you're looking for something to read. How about a book from the Fonz? That's Henry Winkler from the hit show Happy Days. Pam Morton is the director of the festival, and she says that Henry has a new book out about his life. It's a new memoir. But he also writes for kids. He is a really, you know, award-winning children's author, believe it or not. He's got an amazing series called Here's Hank about a little boy uh, with dyslexia, and it's based on his own life story. So that's one book that you could maybe get into. If cookbooks are your thing, then perhaps you'd like to get in the kitchen, maybe try a recipe from I Could Nosh. That's from food influencer Jake Cohen, who has a new book out. Pam says that he is a really funny guy, too. He does remarkable twists on classic Jewish food. Mm -hmm. So he has a recipe called soupless chicken soup (laughs) and things like that. So he does really fun things with kind of, you know, typical kind of Jewish food, but he really turns them on on their heads. So Pam says that there are also some new books from Georgia authors, so you can just check out the festival. Or you can go to your local library or bookstore in your community to see what's on display this month. And that's our show for today. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by email. The address is askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen to Georgia in Play at gpb.org. Chase McGee is senior producer. Special thanks to producer Ashley Mangwasser. Marilyn Ryan is vice president of news. Victoria Evans Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week.